one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Unplayable Podcast. We are midway through the dead old T20 International Series between Australia and England, and we've already got controversy after the first match. I'm Josh Hotterfinger, and I'm joined all the way from Canberra today, in fact. Jack Painter joins us on the Unplayable Podcast because he'll be covering games two and three. Welcome, Jack. Thank you, Josh. It's good to be here in the nation's capital, and I was down at Monaco Oval this morning looking superb, even though they've had a lot of rain here. Uh, it's ready to go for Wednesday and Friday. Okay, have you spoken to the curators, the groundsmen? What are we expecting from the Monica pitch? Uh, I haven't. Uh, they were working on it this morning and the players and, and coaches had a bit of a look at the at the surface as well. But I did see a, a story in the Canberra Times the other day uh, saying the pitch is ready to go. Uh, even, you know, they've had so much rain over here in the last uh Last little while, I think they've had flood warnings around, but uh, yeah, the, the outfield's looking uh, superb and the pitch should be ready to go and hopefully it's another belter like we saw in Perth. Now, you told me earlier that Ashton Agar was bowling today, which is good because he's coming back from a side injury. How about Mitch Marsh and those sorts of guys? Were they bowling as well? Uh, Mitch Marsh didn't uh, train for too long. He, uh, we spoke to him this morning, though. Uh, he's targeting the warm-up match against India on Monday to return to bowling, which would be his which would be the final match before Australia's match before the World Cup, uh, which is good because that means they've got all three of those all-rounders in Glenn Maxwell. Marcus Stoinis returned to bowling at Perth on, on Sunday. And then Ash Nagar is the only piece in the puzzle uh, left. Uh, whether they fit him into the, the starting eleven for the tournament opener is another question. Uh, but he, he looked good. He didn't look like he was bowling full tilt today, but uh, he had a hit in the nets as well and was hitting them all right. I saw a nice clip off his legs that would have sailed over the square leg boundary. So uh, it looks like he's hitting well, back bowling. Uh, so hopefully he's right to go by the start of the World Cup. Good signs for the WA all-rounder. Now, for these matches, we also get the first-choice bowlers back, Cummins, Stark, Hazelwood and Zampa, uh, because they missed the trip over to Perth. Glenn Maxwell's also back. So, And Nathan Ellis, who I'm sure we'll touch on later, was superb in Perth. How much are we going to see the team shift back to the first choice? Are we going to stay with a couple of these guys who've been uh, filling the gaps, do you reckon? Uh, I asked Mitch Marsh this question today. He's obviously not a selector, but he said <laughs> he wasn't sure. Uh, they've, they've kind of got their 11 settled of who they want to go with that first game against New Zealand on October 22. Uh, but whether they show us or the opposition or the rest of the teams in the World Cup is another question. I'd say they'd probably keep a couple of aces up their sleeve, but you should see the bowlers back on this week uh, on Wednesday and Friday um, because you know they don't, don't want to lose too much rhythm ahead of the World Cup. So we might see, you know, Pat uh, Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood, and Mitchell Stark back, uh, Adam Zampa as well. Um, so yeah, we should uh, should see a fully fledged uh, bowling lineup for Australia. And what is the forecast for the next few days? In per, uh, sorry, in Canberra, um, this podcast will be coming out on Wednesday morning, so our listeners will have a match this night. Uh, what's the forecast look like? 
it looks okay. There's a it should be okay for Wednesday's game, I think. Uh, Friday, there's a bit of rain around. I'm no uh, expert, but it said on my uh, Bureau of Meteorology app that it was in just in the morning. So hopefully by the time we're ready to go at 7 o'clock at night, uh, we can get a game away. A nice little plug for the bomb there. Now, let's go back to Sunday night. It was England who won a high-scoring match by eight runs over Australia at Perth Stadium. Uh, it was a great start for England. Alex Hales and Josh Butler were on fire at the top of the order. But it would be remiss if I didn't get straight to the big talking point of the day, which was the Matthew Wade-Markwood incident. People on Twitter were calling it obstructing the field. Not looking like he's focusing totally on just getting back there, does it? I can't well, I say I know what Matt Wade was thinking, but when that arm went out there... But Josh Butler decided not to appeal as the captain... Uh, Matthew Wade appeared to shove his left hand in the direction of Mark Wood as he was pursuing the ball. But, Jack, what was your take on the whole uh, events that occurred there in the middle of the Perth Stadium pitch? It was definitely Matthew Wade making contact with Mark Wood. Um, so there, there, there is something there. Uh, there's a possibility to, to appeal, in my view, uh, whether it was given out is up to the umpires. Uh, I think Josh Butler being diplomatic as he is, sort of saw the bigger picture and decided, you know, it's not worth doing that at this stage of, of the tour. Uh, not sure I could have done the same, but uh, I think higher stakes involved, we might have seen an appeal and, and quite possibly Matthew Wade given out because you've seen other batters given out for similar incidents. Uh, it's in the rules, you can't do it. Um, so, so yeah, uh, that's probably my take, uh, but it's probably a good result that, we're not mm. talking about him being out. We're just talking about the possibility of, of him being given out. And, you know, hopefully it prevents these incidents from occurring in the future because you know, there's this scope in the rules for, for a batter to be given out. Was your take on Josh Butler's comments that if it was a World Cup final, he's definitely appealing? Yes, I think so. Because Matty Wade has that potential at that stage of the innings. And Australia were well on track to win the game at that point too. Uh, you've got to remember that. So if that was a World Cup final, Matthew Wade was still out there with David Warner, Australia in a good position to win the game. You'd be you know, doing all you can to take the wicket. Take the wicket so yeah. Definitely. Well, I mean, the law says the batter is out obstructing the field if while the ball is in play, he or she willfully attempts to obstruct or distract the fielding side by word or action. Word, I find an interesting one there. So <laughs> by the letter, letter of the law, he probably could have been given but... There's also a law that states that you have to appeal uh, to be given out and England just decided not to appeal. The other question is uh, now these days with all of the helmet checks, once you get hit in the head and concussion protocols, you know, Matthew Wade was actually hit in the head during that delivery. So whether that would have some weight on the decision or whether there needs to be a, a clause written into the rule to you know, kind of account for that is, is that's another discussion point I think so <laughs> well Marcus Steiner said that he was a bit, bit dazed after he got <laughs> hit in the heads I'm not sure if uh, that counts as a valid uh, excuse or not well he kept batting didn't he so kind of been too <laughs> dazed um, we have seen a few examples of obstructing the field of recent times there was of course Ben Stokes in an ODI against Australia in 2015 where he threw up his left hand when Mitchell Stark threw the ball back at him. He was given out after Australia appealed. Inzamam al-Haq, everyone's favourite Pakistani cricketer, was out in an ODI in 2006 after he blocked a throw that was coming in from mid-off and he was out of his ground. And we also saw Alex Ross back in BBL 07 who 
sort of changed where he was running uh, coming back for the second and was given out. Now, these were all sort of um, batter getting in the way of the ball examples of obstructing the field, whereas this one was a bit different because you've got a, a batter potentially getting in the way of a fielder and so maybe that makes the line a bit harder to draw. What do you reckon? Is it a bit easier when it's just the ball involved? Uh, we should also mention that Matthew Wade was involved in two of those incidents as well. He was wicketkeeper when Ben Stokes uh, hit the ball away and he was also wicketkeeper when Alex Ross was given out, obstructing the field. Yeah, so uh, he's got I a think... bit of form. But... <laughs> yes. <laughs> His shoe's on the other foot this time though. Uh, I would probably go the other way. I'd say it probably makes it clearer when the fielder is involved because you can probably determine more who's initiated the contact and uh, sort of if they've sort of changed direction or made contact with the fielder or the bowler. Whereas the Ben Stokes one, I would if I was batting, that would, I'd feel pretty stiff. Like someone's hurled a, hurled a ball at you, it's coming close to your face and you've kind of just instinctively reacted. Mm. Uh, which is potentially what Wade could have done the other night. Yeah, um, Mark Wood's coming at him, doesn't know where the ball is, he's instinctively throwing his arm out. The ends of arm on the half one is a more clear cut. He was standing you know, maybe a metre out of his crease and he's just blocked the ball, so he can't do that. <laughs> Alex Ross as well. That one was interesting because it didn't appear on the footage um, of that game that the fielding side actually appealed because it, it was an appeal for a run out because the ball deflected off Matthew Wade's pads after it hit Alex Rotten into the stump. So they were checking the run out and then the third umpire has decided that he's changed course back towards the stumps and got in the way of the ball. So that's also interesting because, you know, the other night uh, Joss Butler was asked if he wanted to appeal and he didn't. Or in that instance, it seems, you know, the third umpire has decided because they appealed for the run out, they also appealed for obstructing the field. So mm, Fascinating. If you do want to have a look at that Alex Ross incident, uh, we'll leave a link to it in the episode notes. That was back in early 2018, but still fresh in our memories, clearly. Uh, let's go back to that match. Joss Butler and Alex Hales, as I mentioned, smashed half centuries at the top of England's order. They looked very strong. And after an up-and-down tour of uh, Pakistan, England now all of a sudden have hit the ground running. A lot of their squad have played a lot of cricket in Australia, actually, whether that's through be through BBL or internationals, and that's going to... Hold them in good stead. Uh, but maybe the highlight for Australia was Nathan Ellis, uh, three for 20 from his four overs. And that was considering England scored over 200. That is a pretty phenomenal effort. Yeah, he's uh, he's come a long way, Nathan Ellis, in the space of you know, a couple of years. Uh, he made his debut for Australia last year and then obviously uh, played well in the in the 100. Uh, sorry, not the 100, the, the blast this year. Um, so I... Shame not to see him in that World Cup squad, actually. But, yeah, as you mentioned, Alex Hales and Joss Butler, they played superbly. A lot of experience through the Big Bash playing on Australian grounds and they just seemed to clear the boundary with ease. I think they probably enjoyed a bit more pace in the wicket compared to what they may have got in Pakistan. Um, and they certainly look good for the World Cup, don't they? Uh, it seems like Alex Hales has pipped Phil Salt, another player with Big Bash experience, uh, for that opening spot. Um, there was a bit of concern through their middle order. They kind of sort of fell away a little bit, um, but they've got some great options still to come back in in Liam Livingston, who I think today we, we found out that he won't play any of the warm-up matches, but he should be right to go for the World Cup. The big number one uh, BBL draft pick. Uh, ben Stokes came back in for his first game as well, so mm -hmm. he'll get better with a bit more 
uh, time in the middle. So they look they look very strong, don't they, for the for the World Cup? They do, yeah. And Mark Wood as well as well. They're 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 quick bowler. They're absolute spearhead. Uh, he found going a little bit tough at the start. None for twenty four of his first two overs, but came back with. Uh, two for ten, I think, in his second spell off his next two overs and, and changed the game for England there. Got a couple of vital wickets and um, England eventually held on by eight runs. Yeah, it does show, you know, just having a, a fast bowler who can, and we see it with Mitchell Stark in the Australian side as well, someone who can, you know, get up to 150 just makes a lot of a di- difference because the batters don't have time to, you know, uh, set themselves and, and try and, you know, target certain areas or they just get a little bit less time to pick up the, the length of the ball, so it makes it harder. So, yeah, he's definitely an asset for their side. David Warner got 73 at the top of Australia's order and he wasn't paired by Aaron Finch, even though we sort of thought that Finch might go back to the top. It was green this time. But now Aaron Finch has told us after this match that he will definitely back be back at the top of the order for the next game. But do we believe him? I mean, there's been a lot of up and down and... Where does he bat and what's going to happen? But with Green not in that World Cup squad, you'd assume it's time to get Finch back into the opening slot. You would think so. Aaron Finch was listed on, at the top of the team sheet on Sunday, I did notice, and came in at number four. So they're trying all the tricks, the Australians. But uh, yeah, Finch says he's, he's going to go back to the top of the order. I suppose we'll have to wait and see at the toss tomorrow. But I think with them getting all their bowlers back and Stoinis fit and bowling, uh, potentially... You may have seen the last of Cam Green for a little while. Uh, I don't see why they would play him in these next three matches ahead of the warm-up, uh, ahead of the World Cup. If they've, if he's not in the squad, he's not going to play. So he is with the squad at the moment. It would just seem you know, counterintuitive for him to play these next three games. Yeah, I agree. And there will be a bit of a squeeze on this Australian middle order. As we've talked for the last 10 months, I suppose, Tim David... Uh, has moved into that favourite for the number six position, which means one of Mitch Marsh, Marcus Stoinis or Steve Smith is likely going to, or potentially Glenn Maxwell, is going to make way for him. Uh, so these next two games are going to be pretty interesting to see where, how that falls. Yeah, I think they will. Well, at the moment, Smith has been playing one game, misses the next, plays the next game. Uh, so I think tomorrow night is when he's comes up for, like, he missed the last game. So potentially he could play tomorrow. And where you bat him is another question. You might be just playing that sliding role. But I imagine they'll all get a, a bit of game time over the next three matches, uh, the two against England and the one against India at the Gabba on Monday. Uh, but, yeah, how they line up for the World Cup, it's the question we've been asking since, I think, since the start of the year, isn't it? Since, you know, Tim David yeah. uh, lit up the BBL, then the PSL, then the IPL. And then the, then the blast, and finally was picked in the Australian squad. We've also all said, you know, got to get him in the side. Who's going to make way for him? And um, yeah, we'll wait and see. Finally, we're going to find out on October 22 when Australia takes on New Zealand at the SCG to kick off their World Cup campaign. But of course, the season or the tournament proper starts on October 16 down at Geelong, Sri Lanka, taking on. Oh. I want to say Namibia. Yeah, I think you're right. And then the game after that is the Netherlands and the UAE. Absolutely. So just double-check Sri Lanka and Namibia. We'll kick it off on the 16th of October. So there we go. Now, Cameron Green, you said that he might not be in the Australian side moving forward. Maybe we should just put him on ice, take him to the Sheffield Shield, which kicked off last week. How's that for a segue? 
Jack, uh, there were three matches of the Sheffield Shield round one that just took place. WA uh, had a big win over New South Wales by eight wickets. Queensland had an even bigger win over Tasmania by an innings and 172 runs. And then South Australia hung on for a draw, a very valiant draw on Sunday afternoon. Henry Hunt, uh, a gritty, determined 97 not out, got the Redbacks some points. What did you make of the opening round? I'm not sure if I'd call uh, putting uh, Cameron Green the Shepherd Shield on ice, but, uh, geez, they looked good. <laughs> the, the WA boys, didn't they? They just made that look so easy against New South Wales, who, in fairness, probably had one of their uh, fullest strength sides in. Obviously, not having the Australian guys is disadvantage, but they don't expect to have them anyway, such as the strength of, of their list. Uh, mm. But they just made it look so easy. And it wasn't names that we would we're used to hearing, you know. Cameron Bancroft didn't get any runs. Oh, he did in the second dig, sorry. Uh, but, you know, missed out in the first digs. Sam Whiteman did as well. Um, who was their number three? Uh, Hilton Cartwright uh, missed out as well. But it was, you know, the young batting prodigy in Teague Wiley who stood up for the stood up for WA and got him 100 in, in pretty tough circumstances. So that's uh, quite impressive. And he becomes the youngest player to score 100 since Ricky Ponting did it in... 92-93. He did it three times in that season, in fact, Ricky Ponting. So perhaps uh, we it could be a big season for Teague Wiley. And uh, i got to say, I did love the century celebration or lack thereof. Um, he didn't necessarily know that he hit it for four, but he said that he never takes off his helmet when he scores a century. What's the thinking behind that? Uh, he actually said after the match he didn't hit it either, so uh, four-leg buys to bring up the 100. <laughs> but, yeah, he said that he doesn't take off his helmet because his dad's always instilled in him, uh, you know, if you get 100, uh, the job's not done, you've got to keep trying to put the team in a good position. So he never wants to cel- over-celebrate by taking the uh, helmet off. doesn't like the me time, he says, and, and wants to just keep getting on with the, getting on with the job, uh, which is a good attitude to have for a, for a young fella. Uh, first day, he's probably going to make a few more uh, hundreds in his time so i wonder if we'll see a change to that celebration doesn't like the me time that's not very cricketer like is it i mean he's playing the wrong sport if he does, doesn't like the me time <laughs> he actually said he's never played another competitive sport which i found interesting he just mm, played cricket right. his whole life uh he's taken up golf recently in the last few years because he's found out that he just needs a bit of an outlet outside of cricket now that he's started to play more professionally uh but it's a uh, Great young kid, got his head screwed on uh, the right way and um, yeah, he's, I feel he's going to have a terrific season for, for WA. Lance Morris was superb as well. Nine wickets for the match, a career best. Uh, five for 36 in the first innings and then four for 46 in the second and he really turned up the heat as well, didn't he? Yeah, he uh, made a few of their batters really uncomfortable and he got Dan Hughes out as well, very experienced in South Wales batter. Uh, just got one to sort of leap a little bit. I didn't bounced too much but it sort of just caught the handle of the bat balloon to uh wiley at, at short leg and um just yeah just to the pace and wa have a have a we don't have the speed gun uh in the sheffield shield or the marsh cup unfortunately just with the broadcast but wa have their own uh speed gun they take to every every game and just speaking to a few of their guys he gets it up uh you know around 145 uh towards yeah, 150. Right. He averaged, I think, 144 kilometres per hour during the first uh, New South Wales innings. That was his average speed. And Jai Richardson, who played the Marsh Cup uh, one-day game before that, was getting it up to 147. So that's promising signs for Jai. Wow. 
That's a very, that's a huge wrap. So somebody from the high performance team at WA just takes their own speed gun. Is that how that works? I think so. They must just the all the teams have a, an analyst, right? So that just must be part of their um, you know, how they look at data and how bowlers are faring. So they just set it up uh, just near sort of off to the side near the site screen, um, and then it hooks up to a computer where they sit in the dugout and it just kind of flashes up the speed. Um, each time. I imagine it gets recorded as well, which is how they can work out the averages. Yeah, right. Uh, Tasmania, now we've been singing their praises all pre-season yes. and they started very strongly in the Marsh One Day Cup. However, their first match of the Marsh Sheffield Shield was a big disappointment for them, you'd have to say. They lost, as I said earlier, by an innings and 172 runs to Queensland and they were bowled out for 147 in the first innings and 139 in the second uh, meanwhile, for Queensland, Labuschagne got 127, Pearson got 123, and Burns and Kawaja both got very solid scores as well. So were Queensland just way too good or was it a bad outing for the Tigers? Or a bit of both, maybe? Uh, a bit of both, I think. Very disappointing start for the Tigers. Uh, they won't be happy with that. Uh, it was a tough pitch to, to bat on, it looked like. Uh, the ball was moving around, but you know, the class of Queensland in uh, Labuschagne uh, Kawaja, Burns, Jimmy Pearson even, they showed it was possible to bat on it. And, you know, if you just batted time, uh, you know, hung around, you know, didn't look to be too ultra-aggressive, just waited for the right balls, you could bat on it. And, you know, as we know, batting gets easier as the day goes on, the bowlers get tired and they just cashed in at the end of the day. So, yeah, very disappointing for, for the Tigers. And uh, there wasn't much to... Right home about apart from Riley Meredith getting a five wicket haul, so that was that was pleasing to see. He bowled with with good pace, uh, as he has done in the one day games as well. So he looks like uh, he's in for a big season. I also noticed that returning wicketkeeper Mr. Timothy Payne took five catches in the early innings as well. So that's a good sign for the Tasmanian side that he's catching well. The commentators were certainly very um, full of praise for his performance. And player of the match was actually Gurinder Sandhu. Uh, two for 18 in the first innings and then five for 41 in the second. So his rebirth just continues. We thought maybe, oh, he'll just do well for Queensland in the one days, but now he's doing it in the shield as well. Yeah, especially since that was probably their full-strength bowling lineup too. They had uh, Nisa in there and they had Steckity, who who bowled really well in the first innings. Uh, missing Swepson, of course, because he was with the Aussie T20 squad, but you know, pretty handy replacement in, in Matthew Kuhneman. Um so yeah, they had a, had a decent bowling lineup in, and uh, you know they all, all chipped in. Sandu with seven wickets for the match. So yeah, he just continues to continues his love affair with Queensland. That's for sure. <laughs> we love the G Man on the Unplayable Podcast. That is for sure. And in the final match of the round one, it was South Australia who hung on for a draw at Karen Rolton Oval against Victoria, who were in the prime position to take this win, but they just couldn't get through Henry Hunt on the last day, who batted all day. And he became only the second South Australian batter or opening batter to bat through an entire day four after Dan Harris did it in 2011. Thank you to Andrew Ramsey for that wonderful stat. <laughs> but Will Sutherland, who was a guest on this podcast earlier in the season, was player of the match and was pretty outstanding. Absolutely. And he called it too. He called it on the podcast in September when we spoke to him, was it? He sure did. And he said, I want to improve my batting this year. I want to step up to that sort of. Uh, all-rounder role and first opportunity you got coming in. The Vicks too, they're in a bit of trouble. Uh, five for 160-odd, I think, around that mark and batted a bit of time and then cashed in at the end of the day and he hit some massive sixes at Karen Rotten Oval, that's for sure. I saw one clip of uh, 
I forget who the fielder was, but the Redbacks player had to jump the fence, climb up onto the hill, fetch the ball, <laughs> and then two balls later they're going back up there to do it again. <laughs> That's quality shield. Love that. Um, and the Vicks also had some good performances from Marcus Harris, 85 in the first innings and 42 in the second. And Peter Hanscom. Maybe a bit of a forgotten man of Australian cricket, but he got 132 in the second innings and looked in full control in that innings, didn't he? Yeah, all class from Pete Hanscom. Uh, the Vicks probably be disappointed. They're in a very good position to, to win that game. I think the pitch just flattened out as time went on at Karen Rolton Oval. And if you're not looking to, to score, as South Australia weren't for the large part of the, the fourth day, it makes it hard to, to get them out. Uh, so it ended in a stalemate. Um, but, yeah, the Vicks look very strong, don't they? And they did that without Pukowski scoring any runs. I think I read a stat that it was possibly the first time he's not made double figures in his Sheffield Shield career, batting both innings. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but they've got a, a very deep batting lineup, uh, especially if you sell them, keep doing what he what he's doing. Um, but promising signs for uh, Trav Head as well. We've got 70 in the first innings along with Alex Carey. Uh, that was probably the difference in the game, really, whereas Sutherland went on to get 100. Um, and Hanscom went on to get 100. Those guys uh, didn't. They sort of got out. Um, Fergus O'Neill, the young Victorian debutante, picked up Travis Head both innings for his maiden first-class scalp. So that's an impressive debut for him. And so the Shield, that will resume at the end of the week, on, the, on this weekend, I believe, uh, when that all kicks off for round two. Jack, your movements over the next few days, you'll be in Canberra for both matches. In Canberra for both matches and then back to Melbourne for the Shield. Can't get enough cricket uh, back at the Junction Oval next week. So uh, looking forward to that. And and then obviously we've got uh, some other members of our team who will follow the, follow the squad around during the World Cup. So Louis Cameron will be back on deck on Sunday, I think it is, in, in Brisbane, along with uh, a few other guys. So we'll keep you covered on cricket.com.au, that's for sure. We certainly will. Your one-stop shop for everything about Australian cricket is cricket.com.au and the CA Live app. Now, Jack, all the best for the next two matches in this dead old T20i series. And we might see Mancat or something if the controversies continue. <laughs> and uh, we'll catch you next time on the Unplayable Podcast. Thank you, Josh. Certainly would make it interesting uh, viewing in Canberra if that occurs. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.